0: record on Fridays and it is Friday the 13th talking about Psycho
1: yeah we got to talk about Psycho on Friday the 13th we didn't talk about Friday the 13th on Friday the 13th what are we doing
0: yeah I realized Why didn't we do that I realized that today <laughs> I'm like we could have done Friday the 13th but we did just do Halloween, Halloween. and that yeah. seems like too many similar films in a short period of time are you trying
1: to tell me that this film and so. and and Halloween aren't inextricably connected through Janet Lee who is the mother of Jamie Lee Curtis and also the way that he uses a butcher knife as his primary means of killing people and also the exact way that he stabs into people with said knife be- by holding it weirdly above his head with his
0: arms slightly bent. Hold on though because I, I think it's more of the classification of the movie this feels completely different than Halloween oh, for even sure. Halloween has so many so many homages to Or it is an homage to this movie. Halloween's a slasher movie. This one is not a slasher.
1: No, this is a thriller. This is a thriller horror. This is a nice slow burn. Right.
0: There will be a Friday the 13th next year. Yeah. (laughs) There's one every year at least. We'll find one.
1: You know what? If we don't get one, we'll make our own. (laughs) We'll make our own.
0: If if you can't make your own, store-bought's
1: fine. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Watch No Evil. This is Matt.
0: And this is Zach.
1: And today we're going to be taking a look at the number one film of all time, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, from 1960. Uh, this film has probably been on everyone's number one movie to see list for decades upon decades. And, uh, it still holds up, don't you think?
0: Yeah, for the most part.
1: Yeah, I would say that a, a lot of the things that are outdated about it, uh, specifically, uh, would be the stuff at the end, which I think it would be good to just get out of the way now. Uh, the use of, uh, transvestitism to describe Norman Bates in that way overdrawn extended psychiatric <laughs> scene at the end which is just supposed to be like and now we're going to talk about Norman who dresses up as a woman uh because his mother is a competing personality inside of his head and it's just like this is unnecessary to do yeah. i think that i think that everybody got it <laughs>
0: I think that, cause that was, what was it? Or- Murder on the Orient Express was like the reveal and it's like this procedural reveal of here's everything that was happening like outside of your your knowledge as the viewer and it's like they're pulling back the curtain and it's almost like they do that in like some Twilight Zone episodes too where it's like here here are the inner workings of our main plot point
1: yeah but honestly if Rod Serling had done this psychiatric evaluation I totally would have been cool with it because he's just got the cadence that's like yes (laughs) tell me these things I already know
0: just the voiceover
1: yeah It's so eloquent and it's like butter and it's just like, yes, this is the material.
0: Aside from that, I mean, it's, it, it just seemed a little bit like forced because of that. But also the transvestite thing that they bring up. They actually the one guy goes, oh, so he's a transvestite because he dressed up like his mother. And then the doctor, the, the psychiatrist, he goes, no, no,
1: because they don't. He's not getting his sexual gratification
0: from it, so they don't consider it right. And so that's that's offensive to to, <laughs> to be short. But also it's it shows the lack of understanding in the writing there. And they did. They, they didn't even have to bring up the transvestite thing, like the, because that they made a point of that not being what it was. It was psychosis. <laughs>
1: I think that part of the reason that they have that scene at all is so that they can rebuke the que- that question specifically. This is sort of their way of jumping in front of the bullet and being like, no, 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 no. This is a different thing. This is, a, this is an element of psychosis. That's not the statement we were trying to make.
0: And they did try to explain it away by saying that, you know, always like, oh, not getting sexual gratification out of it. But it's in saying that they kind of... <laughs> Imply ran the- into a different yeah. bullet
1: <laughs> right so right, right, right.
0: yeah, it's, it's just. It's outdated, but also like that. It it wasn't like wrong. They're just ignorant.
1: Yeah, but <laughs> I also, guess I mean at the at the time it w- was still a part of that like way of thinking about gender and sexuality. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was still part of the vernacular used to describe men who had in in really was more fetishistic than it was being a, an issue of being trans uh, as far as that would go. Because you you look at uh, the very very soon after this movie, they would uh, have you know transgender men and women riding it. Stonewall, right? And so I think that what they were trying to depict with Norman was a, a different entity altogether. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's something that really shows the movie's age in a way that not a lot of other things show the movie's age. We sort of talk mm-hmm. about timeless elements in film, and that really even extends to the language that we use uh, in, in these descriptions. And I believe that it was still considered uh, a, a part of psychosis. Um, but this was actually not the first film that used this conceit there were actually horror movies around the same time that also used this conceit of man dresses up as woman to be able to kill other women which this of course perpetuates the idea that men are dressing up as women to inflict harm on other women which is why this type of media is so damaging to the trans community at large, and why there is a lot of pushback against cisgendered actors portraying trans characters in media.
0: Yeah, so it, it, this just this conversation just kind of reminds me of something that Scarlett Johansson actually said recently, and that she, as an actress, believes that any actor can play any part. So like a, you know, for example, a black actor can play the part of a white person.
1: But she, Scarlett Johansson, should be that black actor. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I don't think that's what she is saying, but she can say, oh, well, you know, because there's like the whole shake up in the Marvel universe of having Tola Swinton playing a traditionally um, Asian character and oh, Marvel's whitewashing their cast. So I think that's where that comes from. But also she extended also- that to be...
1: That Scarlett Johansson uh, did Ghost in the Shell,
0: right? And that's you know she's playing what was it, an android in that, right?
1: Right. <laughs> and she's like yeah. I
0: could I could play a tree in a movie. You know, it's you could you could be anything, and that's kind of like the beauty of acting. Mm-hmm. And that relates somewhat to this and that. You know, obviously Anthony Perkins is not a psychotic uh, cross-dressing. You know. <laughs> Individual. Mama's boy. <laughs> right. but back to the movie. I think that really the only other things that really date the movie are the the actor's accents. It's like, you hear them talking, you're like, ah, this is from like the 50s, 60s era. People just don't talk like that anymore.
1: There's a timelessness about that, about the way that they they articulate particular things, because the dialogue in this movie is, I think, really good. None of the dialogue in the movie feels really unnecessary. It all feels very cogent and coherent, and mm-hmm. I appreciate that. Until you get to this final scene, which, of course, it, he's been critiqued over and over and over for this, scene. They do such a, a heavy-handed job making sure that you know that the person in the gown with the wig and the knife is Norman, based on the way that Norman, like, falls and and the the dress tears off, and then you see like his white shirt and black pants underneath, and the and the wig comes off, and you're just like, oh, it's Norman. It's like, well, yeah, of course, it, we figured that out by now.
0: The the twist is there. <laughs> they wait till the eleventh hour to introduce the the character that has been the killer the whole time.
1: <laughs> right. It's so. I mean, it's just like we we know, and so then the ending scene it feels it feels anti climactic that being said the monologue from the perspective of the mother at the end of the film is mm. so mm-hmm. good and it's so mm-hmm. important the issue with that is how do you get to that scene without going through the exposition
0: with the psychiatrist yeah oh i think that they could have done that pretty easily because there is like that transition from that scene in the office uh where the psychiatrist is doing his like monologue and people are questioning him, and then there's the, I think one of the police officers. They're like, "Oh yeah, like go give him." this... Yes, his,
1: for a blanket.
0: Get yeah, go give him this blanket. And I feel like if they had just cut, they just showed a policeman walking down the hall and open up the open up the cell. You follow the policeman like into the cell, and he gives him the blanket, and then there you go. That's how you you get there. Like you can just cut the rest of that out.
1: <laughs> I don't know because I feel like there's there is some sort of important. Element of catharsis for uh, for Sam and for Marion's sister that we get to see them at the end scene too, sort of all safe and and sort of back to normal. We get sort of grounded by seeing them again at the police station. I think that you're right I, that they don't need the scene. I I do think that it's it, it would be hard. It might feel forced to have done it any other way. If they had done something where the the psychiatrist sort of diatribe starts but then bleeds out. They sort of, you know, slowly turn down the volume on him and then bring in the mother's voice over it because we, we've seen sort of narrative elements elsewhere in, in the movie with when Marion is driving her car and such. It could have smoothed out that transition by moving from the discussion of his psychosis directly into the mother's monologue.
0: I think that's a good idea too because then that kind of like shows, or that would show, the mother's like domineering presence over everything in the movie Mm -hmm. but another another thing that i thought of that could possibly be have been neat was let's say like they end the movie with like a courtroom scene with sam and layla like waiting in the courtroom waiting to like testify as witnesses Mm. and then you get like the bailiff going to like go get norman and then that's when the monologue happens
1: yeah, that would be good, too. There's, I think yeah. that there are a couple of options. That being said, Alfred Hitchcock made a really great movie, and I don't mean to disparage <laughs> it in this way because of one scene that could easily be removed in the TMC cut.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and the other thing that I think dates this movie a little bit not to its fault at all, is the, you know, the kill scene. They, they didn't have effects back then. <laughs> so that dates the movie, but there's nothing else they could have done besides just not shown it.
1: That I think that that scene is still is still so visceral, especially because of the music part of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The that shower scene music is so iconic as far as film scoring goes that for me watching it, I was just like, oh, yeah, this is I'm cool with this. This is fine. I can tell that he's not actually stabbing into her. But my suspension of disbelief is. Still intact, so we're we're good.
0: Those strings are doing all the stabbing for him. <laughs> if there was like, you know, like onomatopoeias, like mm-hmm. how they're, they're words that sound like the action that happening, That string sound is the onomatopoeia for stabbing
1: <laughs> yeah so they call that Mickey mousing
0: oh yeah okay
1: god damn does Bernard Herman know how to write a score for a horror movie oh yeah <laughs> and I love this one I would say I would say this and vertigo are two of my favorite Bernard Herman scores
0: oh yeah I mean I I think most people who know who Bernard Herman in was who knows who Bernard Herman is would agree with you. In particular, the soundtrack captures Marion's paranoia over being caught with the money that she stole. Mm-hmm. I feel like it, it it does such a good job with that because there's it's the theme that plays like constantly from the moment she leaves town, constant, intense, and, and you don't you don't get too many moments from the moment she leaves uh, Phoenix to when she gets to the Bates Motel without mm-hmm. that going on in the background and it like it does such a good job with giving you this aura of anxiety and then when well after Norman kills her and he's going to get supplies to like clean up after he thinks his his mom did it he's always cleaning up after his mom and there's like a lot more chromaticism in the music then so you can like mm-hmm. it's it's definitely more of like a horror movie soundtrack at that point rather than just like thriller like a th- yeah like a thriller
1: yeah he really he really rides that line of of scoring and and knows exactly when to use very specific moments and i would say even at the beginning with uh when Marion and sam are sharing a moment in that uh hotel room which i actually i actually figured out why they were sharing a hotel room uh and it's it's because sam supposedly lives in california and it's a long distance thing i thought he lived in the same town and that this was sort of uh an illicit affair but that's not it at all but there's a there's a level of lyrical sweetness to to all of Bernard Herman's writing and he's able to sort of weave between these sort of calmer moments with these really sinister and thrilling moments so so well and using an all strings ensemble I think is really unique for that time uh, it was it was actually kind of a departure from either the the big and brassy symphonic works that we hear or what was beginning to be a a much more simplistic uh, score culture. And I mean, of course, he's coming off the the back of jerry goldsmith and franz waxman and the the big film composers that were were writing these these really symphonic scores that to use sort of a woody rusty sounding string section really made all of those moments so palpable
0: and i feel like that's just one of the ways that this film was a pioneer in the the film industry at this point in 1960 and i feel like to this to this day 60 years later it's it remains iconic in the industry and it's i think the way the the risks that they took is largely what makes it so iconic to to this day is it was one of the first films to in-depth depict psychosis it was the the first film to well it's not the first film but it had this unique Unique score to it. It was actually the first film to show a flushing toilet, which I don't know if that was a risk so much as just a uniqueness mm-hmm. to it. But it has all these different things. And, and horror movies back then, I mean, Hitchcock was like the guy for these these horror movies. And you know, other other names we talked about before, Marie, uh, Mario Bava. Um, you know, the Hammer Hammer Films, uh, the Universal. Back then, but the, yeah, but those were more. Those are more focused on specifically Dracula and those yeah, like more folklore. Yeah, more like macabre what's the word I am looking for? Like occult kind mm-hmm. of horror mm-hmm. rather than this is It's called psycho. Really? Yeah, yeah. You get <laughs> you get it in the title. It's it's called psycho, it's about mental wellness and like this is a thing that could happen and probably has happened. Uh, not exactly in this way but uh, i feel like the the events of this film really revealed to people at the time like oh this is this is something that could happen there are no super supernatural elements at play here mm-hmm. uh back back then you didn't really know much about uh the people that you're interacting with it's not like you could going like oh like, what's her name norman bates okay i'm just gonna google you real quick so that yeah. i know that i'm safe at your motel there's no google review on on the bates motel This one
1: has one star and says that a woman was killed here and that you pushed her car into a swamp
0: one out of one out of five <laughs> <laughs> but, but but great service. I mean, he he held eye contact with me the whole time I was talking to him. Yeah. <laughs> he said he was gonna he said he was gonna give me a continental breakfast, but he never did because I died.
1: <laughs> it's and yeah. you know it, it is one of those things too. We we talk about you you mentioned this being so early in in the psychosis sphere. And I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say that it it was the first, obviously, uh, because you think about films like Harvey, um, which is where the main character sees a fictional or sees a rabbit. That he believes is his friend, uh, or you. Th- I think of uh, the movie with Cary Grant, uh, *Arsenic and Old Lace*, which depicts an element of psychosis in all of them, and they talk very openly. But it's it's done very comedically, which is very different. And it's supposed to be playing on the stereotype of the the psychotic killer always has a very distinct look, and it's typically gr- haggard, or it's or or he's sort of grisly, or Deformed or misshapen and I think that even goes back to like M which was the the movie about the the serial killer from the 1930s it's German and they always depicted these killers as being people you know you would be afraid of running into at mm-hmm. any point in time and then you see this movie with Norman Bates who is a good looking fairly energetic mid-twenties guy like, he just looks like a, a dude that you could get to know and that you could talk to. And it's not until we sort of get to move past the facade of, of that into the madness that we're like, oh, this, this person who we assumed to be this highly functioning, you know, prototypical member of society is, is, a, is a psychopath. He's, uh, he's actually um, truly deranged. And I think that that's, that's one of the things that for me makes it also scary is that he looks like someone that you would want to get to know. And I mean, there is even almost like a little bit of a, a weird romantic tension between him and Marion early on. And I think it, it obviously goes through with Marion. We get to see it sort of happen in waves. And it's cool. We get to take the journey with her of... She is on the run, she is nervous, she doesn't want to share anything with Norman, and then sort of, for a a period of time, she, like, warms up to him, his sort of eccentric way that he's running this cabin is is almost endearing and then all of a sudden things start to go south and they start to feel weird and we as the audience get to feel weird with her we get to go on that sort Mm -hmm. of emotional experience of all right this this fella don't seem right
0: yeah and there's i think there's a lot too Uh, that what you just said in that I feel like Norman is the first man in in the film besides Sam obviously that Marion actually feels comfortable with because from you know she she steals the the money and then she gets harassed by or actually she steals Tom's money and Tom's the guy who
1: Doug (laughs) Dimitome of the Dim'sdale Dimitome yeah
0: yeah, he's he's the one that like basically harasses her while she's at work. He sits on her desk and like just oggles her the entire time and he's like flashing we go to Vegas. his money and Yeah, come with <laughs> the playground of the world. <laughs> right. And what's the thing he says? F- hot as fresh milk. Oh god, this is Oh
1: hot as fresh milk. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: He goes, Oh, it's hot as fresh milk out there. <laughs> That's also the most disgusting Your phrase dad I've ever started heard. started a real
1: company and then when he died you got to take over.
0: Yeah, Tom Tom seems very like old money kind of attitude. Yeah. But anyway, so she gets harassed by Tom in the beginning, she steals Tom's money that she's supposed to deposit the bank, and then there's that kind of like weird thing between that weird, weird look that Mr. Lowry gives her when she's in her car like getting out of town. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think that
1: he gives her the weird look because it's just like weren't you supposed to run to the bank and then go home
0: well, she went home and then she like drove right but I, I don't she know. was supposed I, to be I, going she,
1: she was supposed to be going to deposit the money in the bank and then she was gonna go home because she had a migraine and this is several hours later that he oh. is walking by and he sees her and I think that it's sort of like a it's a click moment for him where it's just like wait why are you out driving I thought you were gonna go home and i think that that's what sort of sparks her paranoia is that he's concerned immediately but yeah she only feels really comfortable with sam and then briefly with norman
0: well because there's also the policeman that stops her and makes her feel uncomfortable because she i mean she's acting all weird Mm -hmm. he gets suspicious it just makes sense but then also there's the the used car salesman who she acts like super uncomfortable around and he the first thing he says to her is you better not give me trouble <laughs> right he's, his he says the first customer of the day always is always trouble, trouble or something yeah. like that she's anti
1: authoritarian that's what it is she don't like the people well, that look like they're in charge
0: <laughs> yeah so when when she finally gets to the motel and Norman's just like. You know, happy, smiley guy towards her, and does not suspect her of anything nefarious. She doesn't see him as a predator, and that contrasts him to every other man in the film. So that makes him seem more trustworthy, not only to Marion but also the audience member. Like, yeah, this this guy's cool. He he seems fine, right? Like, actually, is uh, attentive and not suspicious of our protagonist.
1: Oh man, there's some great parallelism too when when he starts talking about his mother that I I didn't actually notice until we watched it uh, was the, the way that he talks about sort of the harmlessness of the birds mm. and the, and how his mother was harmless. And it's just like, oh, it's just, they're just harmless. And then at the end, she, the mother is describing herself as harmless when she's talking about how she wouldn't hurt a fly and oh yeah and that parallel actually got me thinking a little bit about it and I have I have a hot take
0: I think I know where you're going with this but go ahead
1: My hot take is that Norman is is the bad personality and that the mother is not and the reason for that is because there's this weird dichotomy where the mother is always claiming to be essentially harmless. And it's, it's sort of paralleled, but everything that we see of Norman is serial killers do, but it, there is, a, there's been a connection to, you know, s- psychopaths killing animals, like that sort of, mm-hmm. that sort of mentality. And in a way, the way he describes his mother as harmless and as, how she describes herself as harmless, it almost to me feels like the actual psychotic break where he takes on the purpose uh, or that takes on the motherly figure is separate from the murderous identity that he assumes that kills Marion well
0: okay so I guess I didn't know where you're going with this but uh I think that it's not quite that simple I think that it is Norman has adopted this warped kind of view of his mother. I think that there is some geneticism to the psychosis because uh the the cop in the area when they when they're talking to him, he says that Norman's mom killed her her boyfriend. She she poisoned him and then herself. But
1: but he but she didn't.
0: Ooh. What happened then? Norman killed them.
1: Norman, seeing his mother uh, starting to move away from him... And be with oh, this other man. He poisoned both of them.
0: Was that ever said explicitly? Yeah. Did I miss that?
1: That's in the psychiatrist rant at the end.
0: Well, never mind that. But but regardless but of see, that, that, fact, that, I think that
1: backs me up because that's like okay, so Norman was murderous <laughs> because it, the the mother inside of his head is not going to tell him to kill his actual mother.
0: Well, I don't think that there was a mother in his head before, and I think that what he has come to call the mother half of his personality and when you hear like the old lady's voice i think that is just what he i think that's like the psychosis that's always been there that he is now given a name Mm. because interesting he 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 says that he had like guilt over leaving her alone even though she's dead so he's talking to mary and he goes oh you know you if you love someone you can't leave them unless Unless you like truly hate them, and I thought that was kind of a weird sentence. Because which is what
1: his mother it, it, was gonna do with him with this other guy, which is why he killed them.
0: Right. Ooh. So, so then he has this <laughs> guilt even when she's dead over leaving her alone. So it's like he he picked up his mom and just put her in his head, uh, and then decided, hey, this is this personality is where I'm just gonna store all my you know bad thoughts about. Uh, about women mm-hmm. and about what women can do to me, uh, because I do think that
1: there's something Oedipal about it,
0: right? And and the whole the whole impression that you get of. Norman's mother is that she really hates other women and thinks that other women like are going to corrupt Norman oh, or something yeah,
1: like that. yeah, for sure. I definitely think that that's part of it. And and you, you get that in the fact that the other people that Norman had killed were all women before Marion. So, the idea that someone could come along and take Norman away from her is sort of seen as the impetus for why he's acting this way. And then, you know, come to find out that everything was inside of his own head, it, it then becomes right it becomes a question of morality like he views women who tempt him as as sort of the trigger as to when it switches to the mother's side of the brain and she is wanting to isolate him
0: yeah and i think that the tell in that it's actually norman who thinks it about women and not necessarily his mother is that he says to arbogast the uh the private investigator he says, "Oh, I'm not capable of being fooled by a woman." And that's yep. def it's definitely not the mother side of his brain that's that's doing that. It's not so- like he's parroting something that his mother told him w- one time. And the fact that he is still so stunted in maturity, mm-hmm. like he still has toys in his room, like it's, it looks like a little boy's room. And he eats like when he invites Marion to have dinner with him.
1: Sandwiches, it's and sandwiches, milk,
0: baby. And, sandwiches and milk. That's that is the dinner of a child who you know cannot fend for themselves. I'm a kid. This is what I eat for my meals. Okay, because <laughs> well, I'm a picky child. He
1: said sometimes milk is just delicious, and also all you have is lots of sandwich materials, and you want to use the bread before it gets moldy.
0: I mean, yeah, I get that. Okay, I'm not. Had, I'm not
1: defensive. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay let, let's keep rolling here
1: <laughs> yeah no, so the
0: sandwiches uh, yeah. and the milk the the sandwiches and the milk the toys in his room he obviously stunted and and then the whole thing you know a boy's best friend is his mother i think that norman was far more into his mother than she was into him
1: but i think that that's because he didn't have a father figure and that's the whole the whole part of it is that he created this false attachment to her and another man trying to take her away from him Was what caused him to snap. And I I think that, you know, there's this, uh, there's this underlying part of him, Norman, that believes that these women that come to the motel, you know, they could be his, his future wife. And if, if they became his future wife, then they might want to move. They might want to leave the hotel, which would leave his mother behind, which is something that he mm. is unwilling to do, which is why it's him that is is killing them. I, I don't think that the, the mother part of it really has anything to do with Norman's biological mother. I think that that was the thing that I was going for when I was talking about this earlier, is that it's Norman... And Norman's personality—that is—that is is the bad one, and the mother one is just sort of
0: the eccentric. Gotcha. So that's the authority, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's
1: that's the that's the part of his brain that is telling him the child part of him to not succumb to these women's temptations and to murder them to do so.
0: This sounds like really far fetched the way that we say it, but this is totally like this is the kind of thing that Hitchcock would have would have like come up with.
1: <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, he uh, he was doing that that stuff and I mean, he's so good at framing those elements in the actual film that it it's reasonable to, it's reasonable to believe that. And there is something about the way that it was changed from blocks original story because in the in the original version the actual physical description of Norman Bates is so wildly different. Being he's he, in the story, is he like hideous? <laughs> he's he well, he's he's 1950s hideous, so he's short, he's fat, and he's not likable. So, you know, mm. but you know what? I never killed anybody, so that's not
0: yeah. And and that's so no laughter Norman, at my Norman... good self burn. Sorry, wait.
1: Ooh. <laughs> I said no laughter at my oh, good self I didn't even... burn. <laughs>
0: God damn it, Matt.
1: <laughs> so, but that's, you know, he's he's the, not the charismatic, youthful, energetic guy that we get to see in the film. And so it, it, it almost makes, as terrible as this sounds, it makes more sense for Book Norman to be a psychopath.
0: Well, there's something wrong with the statement <laughs> that it makes sense that someone would be a psychopath. <laughs> because it never... It never truly makes sense right. that what, that's what makes them you uh, know what apt. I mean though yeah, I know what you, I know what you mean. I'm just saying it's not so predictable and we know that now, but in 1960, I know exactly what you mean.
1: yeah, it was the ugly ones that were doing it
0: right and what I like about this portrayal of Norman is that he is likable. he is it's kind of like you know Ted Bundy. You know, you, have, you have all these stories, like, Ted Bundy was just, like, attractive, not only in looks, but also in character. Mm-hmm. Uh, He's this attractive guy. And, like, that's just, just how it works sometimes. And, and
1: they got Zac Efron to play him.
0: Right. And then what also I like is that a lot of movies, especially more modern movies, that feature serial killers, they kind of make the serial killers out to be, like, completely unflappable. And, like, they're just... These cold, logical, like almost undefeatable characters, mm-hmm. and they really don't have. They, at first, when the the PI is investigating Norman, he's questioning him. You know, Norman has this really like cool, laid back, like ah, uh, like I'm. Not, I don't have to be worried about this guy. Kind of like attitude about it, but then. Really quickly, he starts stuttering and like getting all sweaty, uh, over, uh, where Arbogast is like going with his, his questions. And so it's not that typical kind of serial killer characteristic that we're used to seeing uh, Mm -hmm. nowadays
1: yeah he he cracks him you're totally right
0: yeah there is there's something and that's realistic
1: (laughs) yeah there's something sort of realistic about the way that he actually breaks he breaks the facade of confidence because i mean look at look at the 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 remake quote-unquote that they did of this with um, christian bale an american psycho I mean, Mm -hmm. everything that they do with with Christian Bale in that movie is emotionless to the point of robotic, in a way. They sort of shield everything about him behind this... This artifice of complete and utter lack of empathy, lack of emotion, lack of feeling, which I think it dehumanizes them in a way that is simultaneously comforting and simultaneously disquieting because when we see people like that, we're like, I am going to stay far away from that person because something feels off about them. It's There's an uncanny valley effect going on with a living, breathing, actual person. And that, in a way, is comforting to us as an audience member because we get to see that and we, we would be like, oh, I know that I wouldn't go around this person, so I wouldn't have anything to worry about. And on the opposite side of this, it's terrifying because when you see people like that, you're like, Oh my God, they live among us.
0: And you can also, what's comforting about it is that you can also dissociate from their lack of humanity. Right. But that's just not realistic.
1: (laughs) And Norman is like, ooh, he is, he's just, he's an everyman. He is like a person, you know, like Ted Bundy.
0: Yeah. And that's like, have you seen, I think we talked about this, but have you seen Bates Motel?
1: We, yeah, we, I've seen a couple of the episodes of it. I haven't seen the whole thing. Yeah,
0: the, the TV, the TV series, Bates Motel. I watched, I think, the first two seasons of it, and they definitely make teenage Norman Bates out to be this, like, really, like, he does have emotions, but it's mostly like anger and sadness and not much else. And it is, it's very, like, logical, very cold kind of character that just doesn't feel like Norman Bates from, psycho
1: sometimes they just they don't need to resurface these ips let it die let it go down gloriously rather than in garbage that being said i think american psycho was a pretty damn good movie
0: oh yeah so we're we were planning on doing the the rest of november we were planning on doing uh psycho this week psycho 2 next week and then psycho 3 the last week of november Um, should we just change that to all Hitchcock films or? (laughs) Yes, we should. We should do
1: the birds next
0: week. I'll get back to you on that. (laughs) We'll talk about that off air. But speaking (laughs) of the birds, (laughs) are you just setting me up for this segue? You mentioned the birds earlier and what what they have to do with uh, Norman's mother. Mm -hmm. Norman also says that Marion eats like a bird. And uh, a weird pick-up when, of yeah, that's when they're in the office like surrounding or they're they're in the office and they're eating and they're surrounded by those stuffed birds they're and being they, they mostly show the birds of prey. There's like an eagle and like falcon and I swear and those... to God,
1: Zach, if you play me bird sounds and ask me to identify these birds, I will oh, strangle you.
0: You know, that's close, but that's not what I'm gonna tell you. <laughs> i'm not that mean uh you're really close though uh but he says she eats like a bird and her last name is crane right so and that's her real last name and then that's that's the whole thing is i think she like kind of points that out i don't i remember how her last name comes up but uh he's like oh what's your last name again she goes oh crane and that's of course different than the fake name that she signed on her like sign in for the Mm -hmm. the motel uh so like he starts getting suspicious of her for some reason yeah uh, Even though I even don't though think she's he cares fifteen minutes away
1: from where her lover is staying,
0: right? Just
1: go to his house.
0: <laughs> no, wait. It was like an hour or two. No, right?
1: it was fifteen minutes when she when she goes into the thing and she asks how far away is Fair Fairview Fairfax, California. He, Norman says, "Oh, it's about fifteen minutes up the road."
0: That's also like yeah. She's just she's like a criminal on the run, and she's gonna like
1: stop at a motel
0: get. Yeah, she's going to give, she's going to basically create witnesses against her case. (laughs) Uh, All right. Well, yeah, that's that's kind of a plot hole. I was just mentioning that it's kind of fun that her last name is Crane and Mm -hmm. uh, with the birds. And I wonder if, like, the, the whole Birds of Prey thing is supposed to be scary or if they're supposed to be, like kind of foreshadowing that Marion is about to be prey.
1: I do think that that is the thing. I also think that there is an element of voyeurism of having things watching uh, Marion and Mm. Norman in this room, because there's something that's sort of unsettling about feeling like these creatures are all surrounding you and just watching and they're dead things. And to me, it's sort of, it sort of leads into Norman removing the painting and then watching her through the, the hole in the, in the
0: wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, One more thing that I have, and that is something that you said earlier. You said that there is like, Norman suddenly shifted when talking to Marion when they're they're having dinner. And I think that that shift happens when Marion kind of suggests that Norman should put his mother in a madhouse, and he gets all offended because, as we've discussed, his mother is in his mind. It's part of his mind. And she has kind of suggested that, you know, oh, you're a little crazy. And it's the implication that he might be psychotic is uh, kind of what induces the psychosis in in this case and he describes this madhouse <laughs> this hypothetical madhouse in detail and it's it's almost as if we're supposed to like get the impression that he's been in a madhouse yeah. before.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the trigger. It's the it's the idea of separation. Because if he put his mother in a madhouse, then they would be separated. And I think that that's part of it too. Is that one Marion's calling him out? She's just oh.
0: like,
1: you're you're crazy. And at the same time, it's it would be a separation from his mother figure. Because if he does go to a madhouse and they cure him his mother is gone. She is dead. And so then he would lose her permanently and he would lose the version of her that he has been able to sort of keep contained in his head.
0: Gotcha. So you're saying that if there's that separation, if that separation were to happen, he's kind of afraid of it because then that just leaves him with himself. right? And that is kind of the psychosis side of things or psychotic yeah, side of his mind. that's totally what so. I was
1: I was reading it as. I wasn't necessarily reading it okay. as like the idea of... of him being mad is the thing that sets it off. I think it's the idea of of him being separated from his mother, and I think that that's why he's because Arbogast never accuses him of being crazy. Uh, but there's there's that same well, sort of flip with Ar- Arbogast where he all of a sudden switches to to be a little bit more aggressive. Uh, and you and know
0: what? You know what it is though. There is there is an implication because there is when when Arbogast is. Asking, he asked him something, he asks and then about he says, the mother.
1: He wants to go talk to the mom.
0: Well, there's that, but also he is questioning him. He asked him a question. And he goes, "Are you willing to commit yourself?" And he's asking if he's willing to commit himself to the answer to that question. But the phrase, as we know today, oh, yeah, committing yourself is. You know, checking yourself into uh, a psychiatric facility. And, you know, Norman goes, commit myself. And he, you can tell, like, he starts getting a little more aggressive from there on out. So I think that there is that, that kind of implication there.
1: It's, it's honestly probably both. It's, uh, I would say that the, those two things are tied together mm-hmm. that way. And they are intended oh, yeah. to be that closely knit that the separation of of his mother and his own insanity are are two halves of the same whole thing
0: right and that's i mean that's kind of the whole thing in the end when he's only speaking in his in his mother's voice when he's in that cell mm-hmm. at the end is that it's implying that he's more unhinged and more more lost in his in his own mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why the mother's skull
1: superimposes over his face. Although the psychiatrist does say that the mother has taken
0: full control.
1: And to that I say no. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I guess the implication is I mean I guess we'd have to watch Psycho Two to find out. <laughs> yeah,
1: psycho Two. Yeah. With Norma Bates. Norma Bates. That's the, is that's that the mom's real? name. The mom's named Norma Bates. Oh, I didn't even and know. that And what's her she son's name? name? Norman Bates. Whoa.
0: Maybe that's where he originally got the idea that she was like all about him. Yeah. It's mini-me. It's
1: mini-me. And then, well, yeah, nor ma, as in ma, as in mother, and nor man, ma.
0: the boy version. Ooh, you know, that's, uh, there's something to that.
1: I just made that up myself right this very minute, so that That could sick. be why
0: they <laughs> chose those names.
1: Very, very possible, very possible.
0: I mean, if that's why, it takes a lot of takes a lot of, like, detour route to get there, but... Um, oh yeah it works it it absolutely works whether or not it
1: has anything to do with it is entirely questionable (laughs) but if Uh, i was able to come uh, up with something like that i'm sure that they're able to all right (laughs) it's not so so, superficial
0: um are you ready for this mystery game i am let's do it okay so this is a game that i'm choosing to call psyched for sounds and it's probably uh, exactly what you're thinking i'm going to play some sound effects that are from the movie Okay And I want you to tell me What's happening on screen Based off of that sound Oh, okay And I don't have like The source audio, obviously Of the movie So you will hear Some of the the soundtrack going on uh-huh. And you having the mind that you have I just want you to try to ignore that <laughs> Okay <laughs> Because knowing you You're going to be able to place it Because of the soundtrack Okay So, alright Here's the first one Right, that's it.
1: Okay, uh, that is Arbogast dialing the phone to call Sam and Marion's sister.
0: Very good. That was. Oh, by the way, these these increase in difficulty. So that was that was exactly what it was. Good job. All right, here's the next one, and that's it. Mm-hmm.
1: Is that when Norman hits Sam over the head with the, like, thing on the side table?
0: Yep, that's it. Good
1: job.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's two for for five. Or no, wait. Yeah, two for five. We have five of these. All right. Oh, I like this game. here's the third. Yeah, this is a good one. one. I thought it was pretty clever. Uh, All right. So here is number three. This is a bit of a longer one.
1: Uh, that's her shoving money into the envelope and then into her purse.
0: I'll give it to you. <laughs> it's, it's actually her unpacking the money. Uh. It's when she's wrapping it in the newspaper. So she's taking it out of the envelope and then she's putting it in the newspaper. Right. Okay. Uh, to then hide it. So I'll, I'll give it to you though. Cause you basically got it. I knew that it was the <laughs> so. money
1: and that she was getting the money out and putting it in paper.
0: All right. Three out of five. Good job. Uh, good luck on these last two. Oh, God. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Here we go.
1: Okay, so car driving and some sort of knocking. My instinct is that it's her. It's her walking up to the car dealership.
0: Okay. So you're, that that's the closer one. <laughs> uh, which makes me almost want to give it to you. Uh, because it's actually her walking into her office. Her so she opens office. the door to her office, and that's when you hear the car right, go you, by you, outside. And then she's walking across the floor. Yeah, don't give me that one with her heels. But I knew it was her heels, okay. so I'm I'm proud of that. Okay, so three out of five. I know still. I know the
1: sound of high heels on a hardwood floor.
0: One to go. Yeah, that's that's they keep coming back that's what for it more. It's a party tonight. <laughs> All right, here is the last one. All right.
1: All right, the shoes were bigger. So it's either Norman, Sam or Arbogast. Is it them walking up after the after the car had been pulled from the swamp? No bodies. I mean, no bodies
0: up it. You're close. <laughs> uh it's
1: uh, is it them walking in the precinct?
0: No, they're they're at the motel. At the motel. This one was was tough i realized after the fact that this one could have been placed at a couple of different spots in the movie but this the fact that this didn't have any soundtrack behind it i thought made it really hard yeah yeah also a little more notable uh it's actually when layla and sam are checking into the motel like they're acting as if they're a couple and norman is like i'll show you to your room and then they're like no we'll figure it out ourselves and they're walking down the the uh Uh, like the porch got it
1: i could tell that they were heavier footsteps so i was almost sure that it was sam's footsteps
0: do you do you want one more like super impossible one sure (laughs) (laughs) all right so i i figured this one would just be for fun that was it (laughs) what I told you it was impossible. Can-
1: okay, give me, a, give me a hot second. Okay, give me a second. Okay,
0: okay. I can also give you a hint if you want. Uh,
1: no, uh, give me one... Give me a second. So it's late later into the movie it's not early
0: you're right about that uh
1: is it is it while sam and layla are waiting for arbogast's call no okay it's
0: actually much later than that even. oh wow uh it it's when layla is she opens mrs bates wardrobe
1: <laughs>
0: oh so i just thought that was like a kind of an interesting sound I,
1: so. yeah i don't think i, I don't think i would have got that one
0: no i I realized after the fact i'm like there's no way (laughs) there's no way it's just just... (laughs) i'm proud of the ones that i got before that though so i mean i'm gonna go ahead and give you a four out of five because i'm so surprised or i'm not so surprised i'm so i'm so impressed that you were able to get the the, like the ones that you got so quickly (laughs) thank you and you basically got that fifth one
1: I I so. I relied on I definitely relied on the soundtrack for part of it. I was like, <laughs> uh,
0: just um, so yeah. So that's psyched for sounds.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Watch No Evil. This is Matt, and this is Zach, and we'll catch you next week.